Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, featuring fresh and lively commentary on all things Primal, including Q&A sessions with Primal Blueprint founder, Mark Sisson, special guest interviews hosted by Mark Sisson, and conversations with Primal Blueprint authors and other health and fitness experts. The show is presented by Damage Control, Master Formula, the world's most potent multivitamin, mineral, antioxidant, anti-aging supplement. Available at primalblueprint.com. Past episodes are available for download or to review written summaries at blog.primalblueprint.com. And now, here's your host, Brad Kearns. Hi, listeners, and welcome to part two of my interview with Ashley Merriman, co-author of Nurture Shock and Top Dog. Of course, I'm really hoping that you listened to part one where we became acquainted with Ashley's cutting edge work on parenting and competition. But even if you missed that episode, you can jump right into this show without penalty and obtain some awesome and memorable insights on the topic of competition. What's great about the work of Ashley and her co-author, Poe Bronson, is that they are taking some of the most interesting and compelling science out of the laboratory or the academic setting and into popular culture with practical applications for us. So, as I mentioned briefly in part one, competition brings out the best in us only when it's a close race and when you have a taste or a hope for some success. If you're a big fish in a small pond and get thrown into a big pond, it can have the opposite of the envisioned effect because a big fish is used to being a big fish and he can easily get discouraged when he or she realizes that they're no longer head and shoulders above the rest of the pack. They have to reframe their attitude and approach to competition. And I think this is particularly true, the destructive or damaging effects of getting shaken up and putting into a different competitive environment. It's particularly true if their approach to competition is flawed, such as having an obsession with results instead of an emphasis on the appreciation of the process and an emphasis on incremental skill building without regard to, let's say, how you're stacking up in the, in the uh, competition order. So, in part two with Ashley, you'll learn about what really makes for healthy competition where all competitors can thrive and achieve peak performance supporting each other, and also some of the notions that we hold about competition, understanding how they are flawed and how they can compromise your peak performance. Hopefully, you'll be sincerely entertained and perhaps even inspired to come see Ashley in person as she presents at PrimalCon Oxnard next September 23rd through 27th, 2015 in Oxnard, California. So, we're going to pick up the interview with Ashley discussing interesting case studies about the effects of competition in educational groups specifically. That's pretty typical in most inter- in most educational interventions where, you know, you pick a target who you want to help. And and that's actually the 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 smart approach because very rarely does one kind of inter- intervention actually help everyone. The only one I really know about is I mean Sesame Street is sort of a famous example of that. Sesame Street was intended originally to help low socioeconomic kids in urban areas and affluent white suburban families ended up watching and getting more ahead because they were watching all of these vocabulary words and math skills from, you know, preschool. Oops. So that kind of thing, at least that's my understanding of the, the story of Sesame Street. Um, and it's that kind of version, whether that's actually 100% true, I'm not sure. I do think it is um, from the studies I've read. But, but that sort of, you know, 
unequal effect in intervention is pretty common. Uh, my favorite example of the thing that didn't happen was, um, which was fairly extraordinary and an accident in the Basque region of Spain, they got a new computer system for turning out report cards. And the, the superintendent of schoolers or principal is very excited. And he checked, you know, all of the boxes of all the new information they could have on report cards. And it, on every report card, printed out how the kid was doing compared to the average kid in every single subject in every, in every class. And everyone freaked out. The parents <sighs> freaked out. The teachers freaked out. There were reports of kids fighting on playgrounds. It was just a disaster, but they couldn't change the computer for a year. And about three years later, some researchers said, did anybody look at the kids' grades? And the researchers actually found that in that year, everyone's grades had improved. Because the middle kids were like, ooh, that's the middle, I better be close. I better make sure I don't drop. The high-performing kids said, that's the average, and my grade's this, well, I can do even better. And the kids who were struggling said, well, if that's the average, I don't know, maybe I could do a little more. They weren't comparing against the valedictorians, as in the Air Force Academy, right? They were comparing against the next step. It was, an, it was inadvertently the principal had created a close race for everyone, and everyone was then motivated by it. So good takeaway that close races are, are mutually supportive for all competitors, mm -hmm. just like the runners in a pack pushing each other to a great time. It's such an, it's such an easy visual for me being an old-time you know, triathlete. It's like mm -hmm. when, I was, when I was up there uh, in the pack with the other cyclists, we all went faster, and if I was behind, I'd be out there by myself looking at the at the flowers and, and losing time, even though I'm I'm thinking I'm delivering an equivalent effort. It's just there's something about that competition. And and also, if you were, if you're one guy and you're 50 yards ahead, what happens? The pack closes in. Right now, did they really get that much faster, or did he also? Oh, I could slow down a tiny bit because they're way back. Probably both. It's right. like uh, Doctor. Timothy Noakes, who was a recent guest on the podcast, talks about this central governor theory where the brain is the actual limiter of physical performance, not the muscles. But we, we characterize it as the, um, the longstanding notion called the peripheral theory that you got tired at the end of your marathon run because your quads cramped up. And it really wasn't that. It was the brain um, slowing you down and trying to protect you from damage when really you could have pushed through if there was a competitor 50 yards up the road or what have you. Well, I in the course of having written Top Dog and even the rest research I've read since, I used to think there was something called psychology and there was something called physiology. And at some point, I knew they crossed a little bit because if I have a cold, I'm probably not too jovial. I might be a little depressed or out of it. Um, but now I don't really think there's any difference. Oh, what a uh, great quote. I love that. Yeah. I mean, physiology and psychology are so enmeshed. And... The cutting-edge research right now is in terms of chickens and eggs. You know, if you change your physiology, can you change the psychology? If you change the psychology, can you change the physiology? And, and that's where the research, which I think is the most exciting, is right now. And so far, everything's saying yes and yes. Wow. All right. Hey, Ashley, tell me about how positive thinking can potentially compromise your development as a competitor. Blah. 
positive thinking. <laughs> okay, I want to make you know clear. I'm not saying everyone needs to be Eeyore. Why everything terrible? I'm not saying that. Um, but the research, especially, I love Gabriella Antigen, who's a researcher in Hamburg and the and NYU. And she says that positive thinking is really problematic in two ways. One is if you only expected a good result and a bad one didn't happen, then you're demoralized. You were betrayed. Whoever sold you this bill of goods that this was all going to turn out and it was a disaster lied to you. Now, whether it was a coach or a family member or you yourself saying this is all going to be great, um, whoever that was lied to you. And where do you go from there? And the other part is when you encounter obstacles and difficulties, because they're so unanticipated, you don't have any strategy to fix it. Right? I mean, this is in some ways a new version of thinking about praise because praising kids, telling them they're wonderful was really positive thinking. You're so smart, it'll all be fine. And what Gabriella says is that, you know, the idea was, you know, we can't even talk about a bad outcome because it becomes sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. And and, you know, it's the same thing. It's, you know, my favorite example is don't think of pink elephants. Well, everybody listening has got a pink elephant in their brain, including me right now, right? But what Gabriella says is the best thing to do is, she calls it whoop, wish, outcome, obstacle, plan. Um, she actually has a new book out, and there's a free iPhone app, um, one for kids and one for grownups on whoop, W-O-O-P. And she says the better thing to do is to think about a wish, you know, give yourself five minutes. What is it that you really want? And then think of the outcome. Okay, what do you get from this? You know, is it winning a triathlon? Is it getting a promotion? Is it a really perfect present under the Christmas tree? I don't care what it is. It could be short-term goal, long-term goal, but what is the outcome? Um, I get a promotion, I get more money, the person who gets a present is really happy, whatever it is. Okay, now what are the obstacles? What do I have to think about that may interfere with this? And then the final step is the plan. How do you overcome the obstacles? And ideally, this process helps you in that it redoubles your motivation in terms of focusing on, wow, this is really important to me. But rather than I'm going to succeed in spite of the obstacles, now you're succeeding because you've overcome the obstacles and how you overcome the obstacles actually becomes part of the goal. So one of my favorite examples of this, um, Gabrielle interviewed researcher, um, it, it, she interviewed people who are about to have hip replacement surgery for athletes out there. This one might scare you. And she said, you know, okay, what do you think about the surgery and what do you think about what's going to happen afterwards? And some of the people said, oh, this is going to be great. I'm going to be running marathons no time, whether or not they'd actually run a marathon. And other people are like, oh, man, this is going to hurt. I, I don't even know how long it's going to be before I can you know, tie my shoe or go to the bathroom without someone helping me walk there. This is just going to be horrible. And she found that after the surgery, the people who'd been worried about going to the bathroom actually did further and better in their physical therapy and recovery than those who had thought it would be great. And that was because the people who'd been thinking, wow, this is going to really hurt, 
had to, before the surgery, commit to the idea, this is going to hurt, but I'm going to work through the pain of physical therapy so I can walk down the hall myself. See wow, how wow. the obstacle became the new goal? Wow. Right? It wasn't, I'm going to work through physical therapy. It was, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work through the pain to get to the physical therapy to get walking. So that whole process became the new goal. And why I love this so much is every day that that person couldn't walk down the hall on, by themselves, if it had been positive thinking, right, the, the marathon in no time, every day they didn't run a marathon was a failure, wasn't it? Right? They had set a goal a before setback. they had the surgery, and every day they were still in bed and they still couldn't run a marathon. They failed. But the person who was planning the obstacles said, I still can't walk down the hall, but I got out of bed and I worked through the pain of physical therapy. I'm on my way. So it was, again, back to the other book. It was an effort-based mindset rather than, you know, being attached to the outcome or, or not wanting obstacles to come up and crossing your fingers. Well, it's definitely, you know, to me, it's about, you know, again, like, like we're saying about self-efficacy, that idea of improving skills. And as long as you have a sense you can keep improving, you're going to be motivated to keep trying. If you don't have a sense you're improving, you stop. There's why, why keep going? Why put myself through such a thing? There's no point. So it's that sense of improvement and being able to, you know, look and see how far you've come that makes how far you need to go seem less daunting. And it doesn't mean it's easier, but that you can at least take pride and say, okay, well, today I'm making one more step further. And then you keep going forward rather than the sort of all or nothing. This is how it is. Yes or no. So when you talk to corporate groups, how does this stuff go over? Because there's such a fixation on results. I mean, you don't hit your quarterly earnings, you're going to be fired. Uh, salesmen are going to uh, the same thing if they don't hit their number. Um, yeah. And this is sort of trying to convince them of a bigger picture. Well, you know, it, it, as I said, I don't have a canned speech. So how I might talk about these ideas with staff versus management isn't necessarily the same. Because the staff, you know, who's deciding on what the structure is? But what I usually, you know, if I tell staff, you know, the way they should hire you is this. Well, that's not helpful to them, right? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Ashley. Exactly, right? That's not helpful. Um, if I, you know, we're talking to management and I said, now, how are you need to respond to management's demands is this. They look at me like we are management. So, again... It's important to know who you're talking to. But what I try and tell everyone is that I understand there are fiduciary needs, um, whether it's a quarterly report, whether it's an IRS bill, whether it's a stockholders, whether it's paying off a credit card because you charged something, you know, if it's a small business, all, you know, all of those are different. And I get that. But especially when you're talking about people, the focus has to be on development. Hmm. And you may say, well, we want our people to be innovators and we want them to grow, but the widget has to be safe to, you know, ship. Well, I want my widget safe. I want my buildings to stand up. 
So I don't want an engineer to say, well, I was in this personal development growth <laughs> mode and it looked beautiful. So I just thought I would, you know, freedom of expression, you know, earthquake codes be damned. No, 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 no. I, I'm, I live in LA. I want my earthquake proof building. So in the, in the institution and the delivery, I get that things need to be more accountable. But if you're talking about who we are as humans, I, I do think we need a larger view. And the rest of it, I think you need to have, def you know, you need to consciously switch. And I think that's the problem in corporate. You know, the dot-com that becomes really successful as an innovation leader, and then they have an IPO or you know, once things are down the road and they have a product, suddenly it's like, well, what happened? We lost our way somewhere. Well, that's the problem. I would rather you at some point say, okay, now we have to ship widgets. So for three months, we're going to be in this mindset, not that mindset. Um, but three months afterwards, and once the widgets are shipped, we're going to have another meeting and we're going to see where we move from here. Excellent. Good compromise. I, I feel the same with um, referencing my athletic example of you know, you, you can't be blasé about um, trying to rise up the rankings and, and conquer the, the big challenges, but at the same time, you constantly have to recalibrate. So, um, you know, I, I, I kind of, I, I like a lot of John Wooden quotes in this realm because um, he talks about, uh, one of them is, perfection is impossible, but um, striving for perfection is not. And that kind of gives you that out to where, okay, we're going to try to go for results. We're going to beat our quarterly earnings. We're going to try to kill the competition. Oh, and if we don't, um, we'll recalibrate and continue to focus on the effort. And, well, and again, it's about improvement. So, I mean, I, I tell people, I was even just um, speaking to a bunch of Olympic staffs recently. And in Top Dog, we talk about um, the famous 2008 Beijing relay with Jason Lezak doing this amazing beats the world record time come from behind uh, leg on the relay, which everyone just can't stop talking about even, you know, six years later. Right. This was to get Michael Phelps that last gold well, medal. It was, it was it big, was the, big stakes. Yeah. If, if he hadn't, um, I mean, everyone in the American team needed to swim their lifetime personal best. No pressure. Everyone on the team needed to do a lifetime personal best. And if they did that, then the team would win gold. And if the team won gold, then Phelps would beat Mark Spitz record. And right. Outcome. See all of the great things. It's not just about the race, is it? It's about all of the outcome of things. Um, but when I'm talking to people, I say, okay. And, and you know, we wrote, Top Dog, and we focused on Jason Lezak because it was a great way to start a conversation. But a lot of people miss the fact that five of the eight teams beat the world record that day. Wow. Uh, one of the teams that didn't beat the world record still got the new national record for their country. And I'm like, if you're only focused on who was on the medal stand, you missed it. Because on that day, everyone in the pool had done something they had never done before, their country had never done before, no one in the world had never done before. And if you only focused on, quote unquote, the win, or the loss, you missed it. And if you focused on the improvement, if you focused on, have we ever done this before, you wouldn't have seen it. But if you did, 
focus on that. How could that not change the next time you were faced in a pool in a different setting? Because you know that you did something on that day no one else had ever done before. The fact that it was so inspiring, other people were doing it with you, doesn't change that person's accomplishment. So that's what I'm talking about when we're talking about focusing on improvement and skill building. Because it helps you then that next time say, I can do more. And that's why if you're only focused on the actual outcome then you may not actually see that progress. And I think that's true. And people always think I'm saying about this, you know, if you're the eighth team and you didn't get the medal, and I'm sure that was horrible. And I'm sure it wasn't horrible. They still went home with a national record. They're very proud. <laughs> talked to that team. They're very proud. Or at least I've talked to their coaching staff. But, the, uh, but, but I also think that if you're only focused on outcome, it doesn't help the guy who won. I know Olympians who throw tantrums after they want to meet. Uh, Rick Carey on the gold medal stand in 1984 in Los Angeles sulking because he won the gold in the backstroke but didn't break the world record, which was, you know. Exactly. Yeah. He knew he was going to win the gold. And that's yeah. what happens is, um, you know, people who win, but they knew they were going to win. The reason they were there was to break their personal best or the world record. And again, if you only focused on the outcome you missed it. And so even if you're succeeding, if you just say, oh, tick the box, I'm, you know, I won today. But, well, maybe you won because of dumb luck. Maybe the guy you were competing against got stuck in traffic. Right, yeah. Right? And how does that help you improve the next time? Excellent. So it's always about focusing on where are you doing and what's, and giving people yourself or those you mentor or those you coach specific things that you can do as that checklist so that you keep an eye on the progress that you keep making and the things that you need to keep doing. Ashley, this is great stuff. I feel like we're going to have to have a, a part two for Top Dog because there's, there's a bunch of other stuff I wanted to ask you about, but I, I promised you and your busy schedule wrapping presents for your uh, kids that you tutor and our listeners are accustomed. Um, but I, let, let's, let me end with one more uh, juicy uh, question for you that's been a hot topic around the, um, around the peak performance world lately, and that's the 10,000 hours rule. Are you yeah. going to do another um, sound effect or we could get Brock to do it? <laughs> Blah. Yeah, I'll do it. Let I me was try. actually going to be, I was going to be very quiet. <laughs> <laughs> just a hum. Yeah. Well, anyway, um, this was, this was just quickly, if you're unfamiliar listeners, this was uh, a concept that was popularized. And I'm saying that in quotes uh, by Malcolm Gladwell and, and also Daniel Coyle in, in their books. And it was um, setting this this concept that if you practiced enough at whatever, that you'd be um, uh, world class. Um, and it sort of has become taken a life of its own and become distorted in many ways. Even the the person that uh, the initial study that um, this came from, Kay Anders Erickson, has sort of refuted a lot of how this thing's been characterized. And uh, your quote about this is that I think it's your quote. Said- that he, um, one of his main quibbles, um, Erickson's, was that Gladwell had come up with the line, the 10-year rule, or the 10,000-hour rule. Yeah. And then he never used that. But in point of fact, I have I went back and reread all of Erickson's studies relating to this, and he didn't use 10,000-hour rule. He said the 10-year rule. Right. But he did actually say 
the blank amount of time rule. So I thought, I, I, I did not think that was a fair criticism on his part. <laughs> and I haven't said that to anybody. That was the first time I said that out loud. <laughs> Wild. Yeah. Well, it's, um, it's been uh, it's starting to get refuted. Uh, mm-hmm. David Epstein yeah. in the Sports Gene did a great job saying that you know this is sort of a ridiculous oversimplification mm-hmm. of what it takes to be great. And uh, you said we're all thrown into competitive situations long before we've had enough practice. Right. Our results are still judged. Our fate is still determined by how we do. To survive these trials, we need more than practice. We need competitive fire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and actually, after. After both my book and David's book came out this past, I think it was June. It's been a crazy kind of year. Um, and the journal, scientific journal Intelligence actually devoted an entire issue um, of methodological criticisms, uh, the 10,000-hour oh, rule. Nice. So if, you, <laughs> if you really want to go hardcore science journal, um, Scott Barry Kaufman linked to all of them and has sort of a button title explanation on the different ones. Yeah, to my my view, there is such a thing as talent. Again, you don't necessarily need to tell people you're talented, but uh, there is such a thing as talent. No matter what, I am not going to be a master basketball player. I could, you know, practice for a hundred years. I'm still two feet short, um, and I don't have the physical dexterity, even if I were taller. So. You know, to say, well, you know, everyone's the same after 10 years, I don't think that's true. Um, Even a more recent study just in the past month came out specifically looking at sprinters and found that sprinters generally have a surprisingly short period of training and sort of spring on to, or perhaps they sprint on, uh, to the national stage very quickly with like 2,000 hours, not 10 so even in certain fields, it may be different. But our view for Top Dog was, okay, maybe it takes 10,000 hours to get good at something, but who cares? No one gets that, right? If I hire you for a job, I don't even necessarily tell you where the bathroom is yet. I still expect you to perform. You're like, but where's the coffee machine? I'm like, is is the report done? <laughs> I, you don't you don't get to tell me. I need to find my coffee, and I need ten years of experience before I can write the report. No, you got to do it now. And and then also, so you have ten years of experience. I have ten years of experience, but only one of us gets the promotion. Well, who is it? And what are the factors that make one of us win? Because at a certain point, we'll all have experience, but only one of us is going to get that promotion. So those were the kinds of driving questions we wanted, you know, to think about during Top Doc. You know, is why are some people who are equally skilled, whether it's because of innate talent or practice or training or whatever, but on game day, what's going to happen? So, so that's really what Top Dog is about, is looking at the structural and personality and gender and societal differences that help one of us succeed or not, regardless of the amount of experience we formerly have. 
Ashley Merriman, what a great discussion with you. And if you're not convinced to go out and get Nurture Shock, especially if you're a parent and top dog, if you are competitive in any area of your life by this time, I, I don't know. I, I feel sorry for you. Even the people that listen at 1.5 speed, and I want to mess with them a little bit because I listen at 1.5 speed to a lot of podcasts. And uh, you still get a lot of benefit from this podcast and be inspired to go buy a top dog by Ashley Merriman. Ooh, that's going <laughs> to come out. You only good. need 5,000 hours. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Everything's sped up. Oh, boy. So we look forward to having you out at PrimalCon Oxnard next September 23rd through 27th um, and, and learning more about you and the, the Primal Blueprint podcast listeners. It was such a wonderful privilege to have you on. Maybe we can get you back for part two sometime. But for now, thank you for listening. This is your host, Brad Kearns and Ashley Merriman, author of Top Dog, Nurture Shock, and a bunch of other cool stuff you can find out all about where, Ashley. Um, AshleyMerriman.com works or TopDogBook.com. Thanks for listening to the Primal Blueprint Podcast. Safeguard your health with the most comprehensive all-in-one nutritional supplement on the planet. Primal Nutrition's Damage Control Master Formula. Forget mixing and matching with multiple bottles of individual agents. Now you can just take a single packet of the most potent and optimally balanced multivitamin, multimineral, antioxidant formula available on the market. You'll enjoy complete immune system, cardiovascular, memory, nerve, bone, liver, and anti-stress support, and much more. With 51 research-proven ingredients, Damage Control Master Formula helps you combat oxidative damage in every cell and every system in your body and shore up any dietary shortcomings with complete protection. Order Damage Control Master Formula today at PrimalBlueprint.com and check out the incredible free shipping offer for our convenient and custom-designed auto-ship program.